Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that time has forgot. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is our resident microphone hog, Andrew Phillips. Hello. And today we're on the hunt for Stephen Hopkins' Predator 2. Does it deserve a place in our trophy room or should it be buried in the yard? Los Angeles, 1997. It's the hottest summer on record. Pollution is choking the city. The gangs control the streets. It has not been a nice day! As bad as things are, they're about to get worse. Much worse. Whoever killed him is going to pay. I'm going to finish it. It has almost no weight. But it cuts like steel. Incredible. Whoever did this took out four men armed with machine guns by hand. You don't know what you're dealing with. Other world life forms drawn by heat and conflict. He's on safari. Lions. Tigers. The bears. Oh my. Gary Busey, Ruben Blades, Maria Conchita Alonso, Bill Paxton. Predator 2. He's in town with a few days to kill this Thanksgiving. Years have passed since Arnold Schwarzenegger's one-on-one battle with an alien hunter in the jungles of South America. Instead, Stephen Hopkins places Predator 2 in the far distant future. The year is 1997, and Los Angeles is enduring an unrelenting wave of heat and crime. Danny Glover plays Lieutenant Mike Harrigan, a police officer who finds himself caught in a battle with both a mysterious hunter alien, hell-bent on making a trophy of his skull, and early-onset diabetes. So Andy, I imagine Predator 2 is a film that you are familiar with. Yes, but I only watched it fairly recently, probably about four years ago when I picked it up on Blu-ray. Really? That's I've never soon, seen yeah. it before then. I'm actually quite a late starter for the Predator franchise. I think I saw Predator 1 not long before that. I'm more of an Aliens guy, really. See, I'm more of an Alien fan than I am a Predator fan also. But both sets of films I grew up with. So around the same time I was watching Alien for the first time, I was watching Predator as well. They've always been quite related in that way in terms of my childhood yeah yeah so i don't have that distance that you have when Mm. approaching this film yeah it's something that i grew up with and only came to know as being a forgotten film later on in my life when i was younger i thought that predator 2 was as well liked and well known as predator i didn't know that it was a massive bomb and that really not that many people had seen it i'm sure it's gathered something of a following since But it's still not that well appreciated or well known. So I was aware of this film. I was actually looking forward to doing this episode. Because Predator 2 is a film that I have a very love-hate relationship with. I used to love it growing up. And now my appreciation of it is dwindled somewhat. But every now and again, I watch it and really hope that this is the time that I reconnect with this film. Like it's a lost love. For me, it was more of a pleasant surprise. I didn't think the film was as bad as its reputation would suggest. So when I watched it for the first time, I was like, oh, this isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. So before we start stripping away the flesh from this trophy kill, it's time to provide a little backstory. 
And to provide a little difference from this week, it's going to be Gareth who's providing the background because I have no idea how this film came <laughs> to be. Yeah, I'm very familiar with the Predator series. Like I say, it's something that I grew up with, so I'm very much aware of its production history and I've read quite a few books about the productions of each film in either series. Mm. The year is 1987 and John McTernan's Predator comes out to be a huge success. It makes almost $100 million on a budget of around 15 to $18 million. so obviously Fox demand a sequel almost instantaneously. The Thomas brothers who wrote the last film immediately get back to work and implement most of the ideas that McTernan had stripped out of the previous film. They were really upset that the previous film had been stripped so far back from what they originally envisioned. McTernan, however, declines to come back to the series as he's moving on to both Die Hard and The Hunt for Red October, which came out the same year as Predator 2. So instead, Fox hires Stephen Hopkins as a director after being impressed with his work on Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Child, despite that production being something of a torturous affair. He jumps on relatively early in pre-production, enough so that he can mould the script to his taste. And the movie is greenlit shortly after that, and... They have no scripts at this point. They've just started to work on it, and the movie is given a green light. Where have we heard that before? (laughs) It seems to be a recurring theme in these films. And the tightness of the schedule is made even more unforgivable when Arnold Schwarzenegger declines to return to the series, since the script that they do have at that point, that they are working on, is being made for him. It's being tailored to Arnold Schwarzenegger. But instead, he's working on Kindergarten Cop. So the script is completely retooled with new characters in mind, and Fox immediately go about looking for the next big muscular action star that they can cast in the lead role. Fortunately, Stephen Hopkins didn't want this. He knew that if they cast another muscle-bound action star, it would just draw comparisons with the first film, and so he decided to go with someone that has more gravitas and more screen presence, even if he doesn't have the physicality. And he eventually won out by casting Danny Glover. Fox, at the time, actually wanted Steven Seagal. (laughs) It's fascinating to see how that would have turned out. Yeah, it really is. I imagine if we think it's so forgettable now, It would have been even more so. (laughs) I'm pretty sure there would have been more martial arts in the film. Definitely. It would have been interesting if they went for someone like Jean-Claude Van Damme, who was originally cast as the Predator in Predator 1. Yeah. I'll tell you a scene I would love to have seen if the Predator somehow used that blade that he has in this film and cut off Steven Seagal's ponytail. And we can have like a Samson and Delilah-like moment where suddenly all his powers are drained from him now that his locks have been cut off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, he just yeah. immediately turns he shri- to dust. He shrivels yeah. away, yeah. <laughs> so the production history behind Predator 2 is hardly built on the strongest foundations. But then there are some torturous productions that have made for great films. Even Predator 1 had a very torturous production. I know that most of the cast had diarrhea throughout that film. And Arnold Schwarzenegger has said that you can tell which scenes he has explosive diarrhea <laughs> and which scenes he doesn't. Was that when he's in the mud? Yeah. Is that mud that's or is not it mud. diarrhea? That's not mud. Oh. <laughs> that's probably where they saved the money. They didn't have yeah. to get any mud in. They just sort of all shat in a pool. And I like how mud is the thing that breaks the special effects bank. Yeah, like, We can't afford this mud, guys. You're going to have to shit. But we've got diarrhea, so we can use that. <laughs> just stick a bit of bleach and it's fine. But the entire cast and crew got food poisoning while making the film. And during a lot of it, they just could not stay off the toilet. In between takes, they were running off to shit behind a bush. True story. That's a <laughs> shit one, one for you kids out there. I can only imagine what Kevin Peter Hall would have been like in that suit. <laughs> but can we count Predator 2 among the great films that have been made from torturous productions? I think it's time 
that we actually move on to the story. So Predator 2 actually starts with a real nice and clever reveal. Yes, it's, a, it's great. Yeah, it's an aerial shot that you think is of a jungle, and then the camera swoops upwards to reveal a cityscape shot of yeah. Los Angeles in 1997. The future at this point. We're going from jungle to jungle, <laughs> starring Tim Allen. <laughs> Tim Allen and Kevin Peter Hall. Yeah. Jungle to jungle. Will Tim Allen kill the Predator? Well, well, will it how kill about him? Predator 2 with Tim Allen in the Danny Glover role? <laughs> Yeah, I do like the idea of placing it from the jungle and then going into an urban jungle. A concrete jungle. Yeah. This idea got quite a harsh reaction at the time. I think a lot of people thought it should have been set in a jungle again, but I think the change of location is nice and it sets it apart. It's one of the few ways in which the film isn't repeating what's come before. In some Mm. ways it does, it's just interested in the trappings of John McTernan's film. But this is one of the truly new things, and it should have been embraced. We get this nightmarish vision of L.A. in the year 1997. (laughs) All those years ahead. Yeah. (laughs) There are no flying cars to be seen. No, I was quite disappointed. It's quickly established from there that L.A. is in one of the worst crime waves that it's ever endured and we are thrust into the midst of that yeah as it's, it's got it's got street level brawl between cops and these drug dealers yeah la's got a real case of the paul verhovens yeah really has I, i'm gonna talk about that as we go on but there is definitely a lot of paul verhoven love in this film but actually this entire sequence with the fight between the cops and these drug lords is actually one of my favorite sequences in the film mm. It immediately thrusts you into the action and it defines all the key players that we're about to meet by the way that they act, not what they say. And it does actually set the tone for the film. And the film doesn't veer off this tone for its pretty much its entirety. Yeah, it's definitely one of the more consistent films that we've covered on this show. Mm. This immediately establishes from the onset exactly what it's going to be for the rest of the film. And it doesn't diverge from that. And it works towards the film's benefit. We get this standoff between the drug lords and the cops. And it's immediately apparent that it's a very heavy mix of black and Hispanic Latin cultures. Very, very few white people. Yeah, this film does fall into a few traps in terms of the way it portrays certain races. And in that way, it's actually kind of sad to see it like that. It falls into the same trap that True Lies did and that anybody with a tan can be considered a drug dealer. Yeah. And yet, in some other ways, it's actually quite progressive because its key players are quite mixed in terms of race and gender. Yeah, it does. So, in some ways, it's leading a charge for progressiveness. And in other ways, it's really pulled down into the past. I'd say in that way, it's tonally mixed up. Yeah, it tries to balance out the mix of ethnic bad guys by having an ethnic heroic team. Yeah. But the sheer amount of the former far outweighs the latter. Yeah, unfortunately so. So during this really elaborate action scene, we get a few glimpses of that familiar heat vision from above. Yeah. Something is watching this Almost whole immediately. scene outplay. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's- we get the jungle to jungle shot. We have the tagline of LA 1997. Then we get the Predator 2 title and we are thrust immediately into Predator Vision or Predator Scope. It really thrusts you into the Predator action straight away, whereas Predator spends a lot of time building up. It already understands that audiences have seen all this build-up. They know what they're expecting when they come to see a Predator film and they want to see the Predator. And this film wastes no time in getting to the Predator. No, 
it's very economical in that way. Yeah, and it's I, very good at thrusting. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot that I do love about this opening. It's a great scene. I know that Stephen Hopkins wanted to make it with a western in mind as well, and it does have those elements to it actually. As they get into the interiors of the drug den, it's very standoffish, and he's playing with those brown colours as well. Oh, that sounds so racist. <laughs> no, not not in terms of the casting, but in terms of the color palette of yeah, oh, right, okay. Okay. yeah. But he's playing with those yellows and browns. <laughs> wow, getting worse. These, these are Stephen Hopkins' words. Oh, really? Yeah, these are straight from the commentary, my friend. <sighs> yeah, so, so, ra- so racist. It's hard to get away from that. <laughs> yeah, but there's also a lot of comedy in this sequence as well. It's very wacky. There's some great things where. There's a news team interviewing a guy who lives in the block of flats and he's pissed off that he's been removed from his flats temporarily and he's like, you know, fuck my microwaves in there, man. <laughs> you know, and it's like... <laughs> I think the writers and Stephen Hopkins have looked at Predator and have remembered all of those iconic lines like, I ain't got time to bleed. I'm a sexual Tyrannosaurus. And if it bleeds, we can kill it. Yeah. yeah. They've drawn upon that writing style and really fleshed out the whole script in those kind of dialogue exchanges. It's much goofier than Predator. Yeah. I, I don't think it employs that writing style as effectively as Predator does. But it's still quite entertaining. Yeah. We get introduced to Danny Glover as Mike Harrigan and his Latino team. Of consisting which, of yeah. Maria Conchita Alonso. Previously worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger on The Running Man. Yeah, and unfortunately gives the worst delivery of any line in the film, which is, Fuck, they're dying, man! Oh, it's it's really cliched and over the top. Yeah. And to see it in The Running Man and know that she clearly doesn't speak like this, it's been a decision that's made yeah. by the actor and the director. It's a poor decision. Yeah. <laughs> All of the Latin American actors in this film, for some strange reason all talk like Cheech and Chong. Yeah, they're really playing up to that stereotype. We gotta get the keys of Dallas, man! <laughs> Fuck, man! And that's the thing, it doesn't have the irony that Cheech and Chong has in that it's, it's a joke. This is actually portraying these people as... That's un- hard reality. Exactly, yeah. These are badasses as well. Yeah. But they just sound like parodies. And then you get... Is it Reuben Blades or Reuben Blades? He's referred to as Ruben Blades by the director, Stephen right. Hopkins. So I'm going to go with Ruben Blades. But any time I've heard anybody speak of him previously, it's Ruben Blades. Yeah, apologies if we do mispronounce it, but we are just going from the director's point of view yes. in this one. Danny Glover's playing the typical maverick cop who shuns authority and does it his own way. He's essentially playing the Riggs role from Lethal Weapon. Only he's the one that gets to do all the fun stuff. I'm pretty sure he very much enjoyed making this film because it gives him the opportunity to do all those things he could never do within the Lethal Weapon series because the Lethal Weapon series ages him up. Yeah. He was always playing beyond his actual real age, whereas this one, he is playing his age. Yeah, in Predator 2, he gets to play the Lethal Weapon. And he seems to have a lot of fun with it. One of the best things about this film is actually Danny Glover and his performance. He, yeah, and he pretty much carries the whole film. And it's weird to think that actually the Danny Glover performance is one which is derided by critics. Simply because he doesn't have the same physique mm. as your Arnold Schwarzenegger. People suddenly can't picture him going head-to-head with a predator simply because he isn't a bodybuilder. It's funny to think that people think that this is a step down from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Even though Danny Glover is the better actor of the two. Yeah, he's definitely, in terms of physique, a portly gent who is too old for this shit, almost. Yeah. But he has the gravitas and the screen presence to nail 
every single line. Yeah. And he can just hold that gaze that in every way he comes across as a badass. And the only way that he is put at a disadvantage is through some of the lines that he's yeah. made to say. Yeah. They've come across as very corny. He still isn't given that iconic line that could really set him apart. Like Arnie's got all his if it bleeds we can kill it that everybody talk about and get to the chopper mm. whereas Danny Glover is missing that the other thing I like when you were talking about him being a more portly gent and an older guy they don't try and hide that no they don't try and make him the same as Arnold Schwarzenegger they play to Danny Glover's strengths in that way they don't try and dress him up as something else yeah I do agree so we get a lot of over the top comic book violence there's Danny Glover doing it in his own way and he breaks through the barricade with a car and then he takes out a load of the bad guys with a shotgun. And it's very gratuitous and over the top. I do like how it does this because immediately the Predator is watching all this and targets him as an alpha. Yeah, exactly. It's from that moment that Harrigan is made to be the trophy kill. This is a worthy opponent and from here on he's playing with him. It's almost that this film starts with the Predator's vision, with a Predator marking his next kill. Yeah. And it's almost a film that's told from the Predator's perspective in that way. Yeah, it is, yeah. The day in the life of a Predator. (laughs) But I think that's something that actually sets it apart from the previous film, in that it's definitely more focused on the Predator. And another way that it's set apart from the first Predator is there's plenty more gore in this film. Yes. And it's a Verhoeven kind of style of gore. And it's great. It is. We're going to continue to make parallels with Paul Verhoeven because the film almost feels like it's set in the same world as Robocop. Definitely. The whole tone and all the characterizations are very consistent with that first film. Mm -hmm. One of the first things you see is a news crew reporting and they get shot at and they go, fuck this, let's get out of here. You could have taken that scene out of it, put it in Robocop and you wouldn't have thought any different. Well, I have a couple of problems with that whole aspect of the film though, just because they are really aiming for Paul Verhoeven. This is a Paul Verhoeven love letter. And I don't think Stephen Hopkins has the capability to pull off Paul Verhoeven in the same way. He's aiming for that satiric edge with the reporter, but he doesn't quite get there. And I don't think the reporter scenes really add up to much. What is it commenting on? At least in Robocop, you get a sense that all these things are adding up to building this world. Whereas with Dick Pope, he feels like he has walked off the set of Robocop and oh, into yeah, this yeah. film without much thought as to why. Just yeah. because, oh, Paul Verhoeven did it in Robocop, I'm going to do it in Predator. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't buy that for a dollar. No. 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 Um, <laughs> all the uh, bad guys retreat inside this building. They lay siege to the castle as such. And there's some incredibly comic moments here. There's a brilliant scene where the lead gang member inhales copious amounts of cocaine <laughs> and just go, <laughs> yeah, he's just, uh, he's invigorated by this cocaine and it's all mm-hmm. over his face. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's incredibly racist, but of it's, course. it's great. And this is when the predator, who's still invisible, crashes through the glass roof and... Off-screen mayhem ensues. And he pretty much butchers every single yep. person in the room. The next time we see that lead drug dealer, he's running out of the room into Petrified. a corridor. Yeah, completely shitting himself. Yeah. Almost runs into Danny Glover and his little crew. Just about escapes up to the roof. And Danny Glover follows him up there, which is where our big scene climaxes. And this guy's happy to jump off the roof than be attacked by this predator because he's so terrified about what this thing is that's chasing him more so than he has ever been in the rest of the scene facing these cops 
And that's when Danny Glover gets his first glance at a predator as well. He looks towards the space where this drug dealer's been staring and sees this shimmering, invisible figure. And he thinks it's just the heat. There's a shot from Predator Scope of the Predator looking at Danny Glover and it looks like Danny Glover has a full-on boner. <laughs> it does. It's a big red <laughs> line coming out from his waist and it looks like he's got a full-on boner. We had to rewind it. Yeah. Hey, his adrenaline's pumping, you know, yeah, yeah. a guy in that situation. Yeah. Maybe that's his kink, you know? Mm. So that's really the first opening action scene, and it's a hell of an action scene. I don't think the film reaches these heights for quite a while. No, probably not until the subway. Yeah, sequence. yeah, I'd say the subway sequence is the next. Which is, is probably the, the most famous of all the sequences in the film, actually. It was always my favourite scene as yeah. a kid, but... Again, I'm a big fan of Bill Paxton. I've already said about how much I love to see him piss himself. And that's why that scene always stuck in my head. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great Bill Paxton scene, but we're going to get to that. Yeah. We'll get to that for all those people listening and waiting and for it. And like all Maverick cops, he has superiors who don't appreciate his actions. And so enters Robert Darvey and his wig. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Darby is so wasted in this film. He's in it for a few scenes where he just gets to chew Danny Glover out. Yeah, I'm sure most of his scenes are on the cutting room floor. It's such a shame. I would have loved to see him take on the Predator in some way. And he also answers to somebody else who looks like a um, a buff Philip Schofield. <laughs> or <laughs> Grey Fox Tom Skerritt. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. he does like <laughs> Philip Schofield as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That also seems to be a superior. He could have easily merged the Robert Darby character yeah, no- and his superior and just got rid of some wasted time. That screams unfinished writing. Yeah, it screams rushed production. Yeah. And we get our first glimpse of Gary Busey as DEA agent Peter Keyes. Yeah, Gary Busey's teeth. And I'm going to say this now. If you've ever seen Jim Carrey's The Mask, doesn't it look like the actual mask is modelled on Gary Busey's face. <laughs> it does. It does. And I, I never ca- noticed it yeah. before. It totally does. It almost felt like that was a Gary Busey vehicle and then they changed actors. <laughs> yeah. Like Jim minute. Carrey was supposed to morph into Gary Busey. Yeah. And it was yeah. just going to be Gary Busey in just green makeup playing wow. the mask. That would have that, been brilliant. That's an idea for a film. Being <laughs> Gary Busey. <laughs> oh, I don't think anybody would be able to understand it or follow it at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he arrives with his cronies and his intentions are very shady yeah he seems to be very interested in the thing that was on the roof and what's happened to these drug dealers and he doesn't want any of these cops getting close to the truth and if we're talking about the film replicating other franchises or other directors so we've been talking about paul verhoeven but gary Busey and his crew represent the aliens team yeah he's very much a more proactive Carter Burke type character. Yeah, I'm going to say that and a little bit of E.T. And it's almost, I'm not sure whether it's a coincidence or deliberate that his character is called Keys after Keys from E.T. From the Keys from E.T., I'm yeah. not quite sure, but it seems to uh, fit because obviously they're investigating alien life as well. Of course, it, it really does make sense. Mm. I would have loved to have seen E.T. with Gary Busey playing the guy that's after... <laughs> <laughs> but, and we thrust forward to the police station. A lot of thrusting in this episode. Yeah. And it really does look like a chaotic shithole. Yeah, it does. But the thing is about it, this is supposed to illustrate just how bad things have yeah. got in the future. Yeah. But it just looks normal. It just looks like a rough neighborhood. 
there's nothing really that sets it apart from anything else in terms of this being some kind of futuristic landscape. No. It's just the same place and time, really. And enter Bill Paxton as the Comet Relief. Yeah, who is practically playing Hudson from yeah. Aliens. It's the same character. It's uh, Hudson in a zoot suit. Yeah, pretty much. He's a little bit more heroic than Hudson as it goes on. Yeah. He's definitely got that kind of cheeky, cocky, smug, you want to punch him to death thing about him. But he's a lot more likable. Yeah, he's very good at playing annoying characters. He excels at it. He does, These yeah. are the characters he really excels at. And on paper, this is a character that I do not like. He's racist, he's homophobic, yeah. he's really annoying. But Bill Paxton executes it in such a way that he's kind of endearing. Danny Glover's other superior tells him that Keyes is taking over the operation and he's looking into these gangs that are being led by King Willie, which still makes me snigger. King Willie. I think it's one of those things where the connotation of Willie doesn't have any meaning in America. Really? So, so that's why? Yeah, so what we would find hilarious, like as in Willie and Randy... And One-Eyed uh, Willie. Yeah, wouldn't register in America. So how do you think Danny Glover takes the news that he can't actually investigate this case? Bullshit! No, he goes home and decides, you know, they're right. I'm going to investigate something else. And Bullshit. <laughs> fucking shit. No, he kicks up a right fuss instead. Yeah. As he should. Of course. This is his fucking case. And yeah, he's yeah. Do it. He's got to fucking do it to the bitter end. There are no personal stakes involved, but he's very much invested at this point. Yeah, he's got no personal investment into it other than getting the job done. Yeah, all he knows is that somebody else wants to take the case away from him. And he's not going to fucking let them do that. But you do get a strong vibe that he's all for his team and his team stick together. Yeah. And um, Bill Paxton seems to get this immediately, even though he comes off as a bit of a cock, but he kind of does get it straight away. And I do like that it keeps that team element from the first Predator film. And it eventually builds into being a one-on-one -on -one battle like the first Predator film yeah. does. I know it's a repetition, but I like that they try and make something different of these characters. Yeah. It's the same setup with a completely different ensemble. And we zip to a penthouse apartment for more vigorous thrusting. Yeah, plenty of thrusting. Yeah. And really, she is she is in pain. I'm not sure what he's packing or what <laughs> she's not packing, but she's in pain. There's this guy called Ramono, something like that. He's a crack king. I'll take your word for he's it. He's one of these, yeah, he's a rival drug lord, I think, that yeah. she's um, being impaled by. And... Um, He's not paid up or something like that. It's not very clear no, what's going it's, on here. It's more about the other gang threatening another player. Yeah, it's something to do with drugs and they're going to make a example of him. And you don't really know who these players are, but it's okay because they're not going to be around for long. And this is where we get introduced to the concept of voodoo. Yeah, and another kind of racist stereotype. Voodoo, man. It's fucking magic, man. <laughs> Sorry for my swearing. I'm swearing a lot today. I am. But, I uh, can't help it. It's because uh, it's, it's Predator it fucking is, too. It's fucking Predator, yeah. swearing in that and it's all gruey and stuff. It just yeah. gets the blood going. Yeah. yeah it this... gives me an erection just thinking about it. <laughs> like, like Danny Glover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they use this voodoo shit, man. And they take his soul in a very graphic way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By stabbing him it's in the heart. Pretty much. It's uh, very full on. I always remember... Of all the points in the film, this was the part my dad used to try and fast forward. Because <laughs> he always thought, ah, it was just a little bit too much for someone who's five years old. Nah, it's probably because of the titties. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely because of the titties. <laughs> Weird British thing, that. You can see as much violence as you want. But no memories. Yeah, exactly. 
and then the predator attacks and uh, a lot of peeps get skewered yes there's a lot of skewering going on in this film i almost feel like the predator's trying to create a kebab <laughs> a human kebab yeah maybe that's a film the human kebab <laughs> the human kebab oh how did he connect it yeah <laughs> I do think that in this scene we get to see something which I don't like about this particular film, and it's the Predator's over-reliance on gadgetry. I think this is the first film in several that play on the whole idea that you've got to add new gadgets to this villain, who essentially should work as a one-on-one, very primal, animalistic hunter. Yeah, he's not as resourceful as the other Predator. I almost feel like there's personalities to these Predators, and this Predator's the one that always gets the new car. I think he's actually younger as a Predator. That comes across. But I wish, if that was the case, they would have made more of the fact that he's not quite the same master of his tools as the previous Predator was. I would like that kind of younger cockiness about him and over-reliance on more gadgetry to be played in a better way, in a, more, in a smarter way yeah. with that in mind. Although, for me, I personally like it. I think it demonstrates personality between each Predator, like it's not the same Predator. I feel this Predator's yeah, more reliant on gadgets. He's a younger Predator and he's a little bit more reckless. Yeah, he's definitely a distinctive character when compared to the first Predator. These are two different alien characters and that does come across really well. My only problem is really he comes across as something of a cheat in this film. And the way that they frame him and they play him, you're not supposed to think that. You're still supposed to think he's the same badass hunter, Mm. but really he's cheating at the same game. But I do agree. I definitely love that these characters do feel like different characters. And we cut to the, well, later on, then the police team managed to sneak into this penthouse apartment against Keyes' wishes once more. And find all these bodies hung up and skinned. And this is where we get some of the more gruey elements of, yeah, it's very of the film. It yeah. looks great. It, it looks re- Once again, it's playing on the first film with the bodies being hung upside down. We know this is a mm. predator trait, but somehow it looks more gruey in this yeah. film. Are the bodies all Stan Winston as well? I imagine yes. they'd all be... Yes, they're yeah. all. Um, all special effects in the film, all creature effects, is entirely Stan Winston Studios. The late, great Stan Winston. The late, great. Mm. We can't have more love for Stan Winston that yeah. we currently do. Um, he's one of the best, and if yeah. you don't know him, you need to go out and research. And having viewed Jurassic World, my God, we miss him. Oh, he's, his absence is sorely felt. Mm. But anyway, on to lighter subjects Yeah, <laughs> with these skin bodies. They find this weapon. Yeah, it's like a projectile Yeah, weapon. it's a projectile weapon, and they find it stuck in this air conditioning grill. And they know that it hasn't been noticed by anyone else. So Ruben Blader is actually is sent back into the crime scene by Danny Glover's character in order to retrieve this little projectile weapon. Ruben Blades is being far too curious and he uh, goes on his own back to the apartment and um, tries to get the weapon, but then is attacked by the Predator again, who's been hanging around. He leaves the necklace on the floor and this is another example of the Predator fucking with Danny Glover. Yeah. Like, he's picking off every one of his team one by one. Yeah, it's not like in the first Predator film where the Predator is picking off these individuals because they are worthy opponents. Anybody in that group of people would have been a worthy opponent for the Predator to take on. Whereas in this film, he is toying mm. with Danny Glover's character. The character Danny, played by Ruben Blades, isn't really that worthy of an opponent for the Predator. He's not physically imposing in any way. He's not a badass in any way, really. And he's only killed 
simply because of his connection with Danny Glover's character. Mm. I like that element. I like this kind of recklessness about him and this mean streak in this predator. Yeah. I'll get more into what I don't like as we go on because yeah. as the film actually goes on, that it kind of falls apart for me. Obviously, Danny Glover is very upset by the fact that Danny's gone. and uh, Danny's gone. Danny's gone. Yeah, and he takes it very personally, but he's still ordered by Darby to get off the case. Yeah. Stay off it, man. Stay off it. He has his personal stakes now, though. If he couldn't get off it then, when there were no stakes involved, <laughs> he's not going to fucking get off it now, is he? Mm. It's up to Bill Paxton and uh, Maria Conchita Alonso to tell Diane Glover that Keyes has a slightly different agenda than uh, was first known. This is the idea that they keep going back to the slaughterhouse. They have the small projectile weapon actually analysed and find out that there are traces of chemicals that are unknown and other chemicals that they expect to find in a slaughterhouse. I do like the bit in that scene as well when they talk about Danny's body and the fact that he's been boned like a fish. Which yeah. is really gruey. Yeah. Danny Glover decides, again in classic Maverick Cop fashion, to take matters into his own hands and meet up with the so-called bad guys. So he arranges a meeting with King Willie. The and, king of all the willies. And much racism ensues. Yeah, again, it's just inescapable. Because it's a bit where he gets in the car to visit wherever they're going to meet. And the first thing the guy says, do you want some ganja, man? It's so <laughs> and it's just like, oh my God, it's almost Mario Von Peebles-esque. Yeah, it's very much parody at times, but I actually don't think that's on purpose. Yeah, I'm almost upset that Mario Von Peebles isn't playing King Willie. That would have been fantastic. That would have been great. <laughs> but King Willie gives him some voodoo bullshit, let's yeah, say. he thinks it's a demon. That is obviously the predator. This is a funny part of the film because the rest of the film sets up King Willie as being this big bad. And then we get to meet King Willie, and then almost immediately after meeting him, he gets killed. It would which have is been rather weird. Better to see King Willie in action as a worthy opponent, so that when we see the predator take him on and kill him, we understand what that means. Yeah. That this predator is in fact really the real deal. Yeah. Although I do like the jump cut from the attack to the head the screaming, screaming head. and pulling Fantastic. away, and then it's revealed that it's been beheaded. It's brilliantly done. I just wish the whole King Willie thing would have been set up in a more action-orientated way as a character. What I thought they should have done, the earlier scene involving King Willie's goons where they take the heart out of the guy, that should have been King Willie himself doing yes. it. Then you would have seen him in action. Yeah, exactly. And then you would have got to this other scene, having already met him, and then getting beheaded, it wouldn't have felt so disconnected from the rest of the film. See, that would have got rid of that problem for yeah. me. Absolutely, yeah. Because he feels like a late addition, King Willie. Yeah. yeah. He feels almost inconsequential. Everybody's been talking about him for the first half an hour of the film. And then when we finally get to meet him, they have this little chit-chat that's very racist. Yeah. <laughs> He's a very racist caricature. That said, though, like you say, greatest jump cut in the film. It's those kind of smarts that yeah. I wish the film was had there's, more of. Yeah, and there's some nice bits afterwards where you can see him... Uh, Steam cleaning the skull and cleaning it up and then displaying it in his cabinet. And so within the team, Maria Conchito Alonso is convinced that the shadowy figure behind all these deaths is actually fucking with Danny Glover. But Danny Glover thinks that Keyes is responsible for Ruben Blades' death. And it's a very much a personal vendetta against him and Keyes at this point. Yeah, things grow very heated between those particular characters as well. There's a nice little shot at this point as well, just before the graveyard scene where Danny Glover looks into a taxidermist shop. And it's just a really nice little moment to uh, demonstrate that he's starting to align with, 
whatever his opponent's thinking is. Yeah, he's starting to think that it's the artistic portion of the film. Haunted, perhaps. And I wish it had more of the smartness that you see in Predator in this film. Because the thing is about Predator is it's a silly movie in terms of story, but it's executed in a very smart way Mm. by a smart filmmaker. And with Predator 2, it's still a silly story, but it's executed in a way that it wants to be sillier. It's not made with the same smarts. And every now and again, like there, you just get a moment of, oh yeah, this could be more, this could be smarter, this could, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think Stephen Hopkins has the chops, but he's inconsistent with it. Yeah, I like Stephen Hopkins as a director. I like Ghost in the Darkness. I think it's a really good film. Mm. And I really enjoy Blown Away, despite it being much like Predator, completely overblown. But in the other extreme, if you've ever seen his film of the life and death of Peter Sellers, that's a completely different film entirely, and it's legitimately good. Yeah, uh, I know it has its detractors, especially from people who used to know Peter Sellers. The problem is with biopics is there are always going to be people to say otherwise yeah. about those accounts of people's lives. Yeah. You can see from that film that he is dealing with that subject matter in a very imaginative way. I do think he's a man with vision and he knows what he wants to make. I think with Predator 2, he's consciously set out to make a Paul Verhoeven film. Mm. I wish he had set out to make a Stephen Hopkins film instead yeah, at times definitely. and incorporate some of those verhoeven elements yeah. rather than making it too over the top and we'll never know whether that is partly due to the rush production and whether there's pressure from the studio yeah the studio only has to look over what other studios are doing and they're making Paul Verhoeven films Mm. and they're in that's what's making the money and perhaps the life and deaths of Peter Sellers is the result of a man that's honed his craft Danny Glover visits Danny's grave or Ruben Bladez's grave which seems to have been dug very quickly yeah and it seems like an old grave he only died the day before yeah and now he's been buried and Mm -hmm. Presumably his body would have been under investigation, considering he was boned like a fish. I would say this is something that is very inconsistent in the film. It does rush along so Mm. very quickly that you don't get an idea of how much time is passing. Like I say, I get the feeling that this is all just taking place within a couple of days. Yeah, I feel the scene doesn't really need to be here because the necklace thing, you could have put that in another context. You don't have to have him visiting Danny's grave. Yeah, the scene is just there to replay that particular scene from Predator in which Duke goes to Jesse Ventura's body and has a moment with him recounting old times. And it's just another point where they want to try and recapture that magic Mm. in Predator 2. And it's completely unnecessary, really. They could have had this scene anywhere, and if they wanted to have it make sense, it should have rightly been somewhere like a morgue. Yeah. And him talking to the body bag much the same way that Duke does to Jesse Ventura, if they really wanted that scene. The other purpose of this scene is to insert the tagline of the film, a line which they think is going to be memorable. Actually, I think we've got a clip of it, so cue the music. Want some candy? Want some candy? Yeah, and this gets repeated a couple of times in the film, and they... It's a little bit forced, actually, where they try and make it the uh, if it bleeds, we can kill it, or the get to the chopper line. It's trying to be that line. It's trying too hard. Yeah. And it comes across as goofy. I know I've said it a couple of times in the lead-up to this, but it is really a goofy line, and it's trying to be creepy and badass as it's repeated later in the film. But it's still, every time it's said, I just laugh because it's a predator. It's this alien hunter figure asking if you want some candy. (laughs) in a child's voice you know the only thing that the predator is lacking in the scene is a very sinister white van 
with candy <laughs> scrawled on the side in black paint. Yeah, Senor Preditos ice cream van. But following on, we enter the famous subway sequence. Oh yeah, this is uh, Bill Paxton's big scene. Mm. This scene's actually quite strange. I really like it as an action scene, but the lead up to it is... Um, to say it's disrespectful to a certain individual <laughs> is perhaps an understatement, but mm. it's actually playing on a real-life event where a man on a tube train shot somebody else that he thought was a gang member. All oh, right, And okay. it's playing on this real-life event, yeah. but it's playing it for laughs, where everybody on the tube actually turns out to be this have-a-go-hero type individual. But it's playing on an event where somebody really died. Yeah. And this person got sent to jail. And it's unfortunate that one of the punks looks like Robin Williams dressed as Popeye. <laughs> he does. He really does. It's almost like one of the Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, it's when he's doing the, 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 one the, um, of the tests. It's the, oi, I got a, you know, it's when he's playing the Jewish mother. He looks like the Jewish he mother, does. but with a yeah. bandana. Yeah, definitely. And yet again, the Predator attacks, but the scene is well executed, in my opinion. I think the editing and the model work and the use of lighting is great. Yeah, I like the camera work as well. Yeah. I like when the camera sweeps across the side of the train. Yeah. As we see the people in the front trying to run away from the Predator, mm. as Bill Paxton's trapped in the back trying to shoot it. This is one of those scenes where everything just comes together. And it's nice to see the Predator in that environment, because we've never seen him in that situation before. It's also truly a confined space which yeah. we haven't seen the predator in before we've seen it in rooms that are quite large you know and it's got places to hide whereas mm. in this particular scene it's got nowhere for it to go yeah. however if it did have one nitpick and i do it's that it's a scene in the film in which the predators made out to be somewhat invincible uh, and when we contrast that to the predator in the first film it was never afraid to run away Mm. It always knew that if it was ever outgunned, it had the option of running. In this film, in this particular scene, the Predator is being shot at point-blank range. And Bill Paxton is emptying clip after clip after clip into the thing. The bullets are bouncing off him like they're nothing. Yeah. He hasn't got armor on, other than a couple of little pads here and there. Mm. I feel like it's done to look cool. The thought process is how can we make this look the coolest we can? Rather than what logically should happen. Yeah. And the thing is, I have to admit, it looks great. It's a, it's a scene that looks really cool. It takes me out a little bit when he's emptying his third clip into it and still we haven't seen even a, a little drop of blood out of the Predator or anything. But it's still a cool scene. Bill Paxton sacrifices himself and he's out of the film. <laughs> Again, he gets the same kind of denouncement that Hudson gets in Aliens. Yeah. It's too close. That character is yeah, too close is. to Hudson. It, he has the same arc. He has the same temperament. He's a little bit cooler than Hudson. Mm. A little less yellow-bellied. But he essentially meets the same end as well. Yeah. Probably has less to do than Hudson, though. And Maria Conchita Alonso, yep. she goes to look back and see where this uh, creature has gone. And it's at this point that she's confronted by the Predator. Yeah. And I think this is another good way of demonstrating the Predator's values in that he doesn't attack her because he does a scan and sees that she's pregnant. Danny Glover arrives on the scene in the aftermath. She's carted off due to shock, and she's out of the film. Yes. So the whole team now has been dispatched. It's just Danny Glover on his own now. Yeah, and this is where the film goes into its one-on-one -on -one battle. 
like Predator does, only it lasts much longer here. You can't find Bill Paxton's body. This leads him down into the subway. Yeah, he's the only cop that follows a trail of blood mm. from where Bill Paxton's body was <laughs> down onto the tracks and round the corner. And we get another shot of the Predator ripping the spinal column and skull out of the, uh, the rest of the body. There's a couple of things that I really like in this scene to do with the Predator. And that's they give it this really unearthly, almost feminine scream. And mm. it's unsettling. And I do like the bit where, just following this scene, the Predator jumps over the cars and the vans in the street. And obviously, Danny Glover is in pursuit. And we also get our last scene with Dick Pope here as well. Yeah, as he, he gets... runs outside and chins them. And Danny Glover follows the Predator to the slaughterhouse, in which most of the last third of the film takes place. Yeah, but before he gets there, he's intercepted by Keys and his crew. Yeah. And that's where things get really tasty. And really aliensy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this and is really busy. <laughs> this is exactly the point where it stops being a Verhoeven film yeah. and starts becoming a James Cameron aliens film. And straight down to the story points, the characters, the setups, the action scene, it's aliens with a predator. So it's in this scene where Keys really lays everything out flat about who he is and what he's doing. He completely levels the field. Yeah, well, this is the part where Gary Busey tells Danny Glover about Predator 1. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> this is this is our previously in Predator. Yeah. So, you know, there was this movie, Predator. This is what happened. <laughs> this is the part. This, this is, is the, how it connects with Predator 2. <laughs> this is the part where Gary Busey is telling the audience why Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't in this film. Yeah, basically. Because <laughs> it's 10 years after, and yeah. there's some brief footage of Predator 1 yes. in this scene as well. And it's really the only connection to the first film. And this sequence also has one of my other favourite lines, which is a classic Gary Busey moment where he's talking about the Predator being attracted to wars, and he goes, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Oh my. And, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a, a great, great delivery. Yeah. It's a great delivery as well. And very much like the character of Carter Burke in Aliens, he wants to get his hands on their technology of the Predators. Yeah, it's more so what the Predator can do for the weapons division. Yeah. Which is just yeah. precisely from Aliens. There is a lot less of the um, yellow-bellied snidiness of Carter Burke in mm. Keys and his crew, but their motivations are essentially exactly the same. Yeah, he's more of a gung-ho version of that character. Yes. And they've worked out that the Predator comes to the slaughterhouse every now and again to feed. Yes. And they've built up a behavior pattern for him, or what they think is anyway. They're very arrogant with all this as well. They seem to think they've got him nailed. Yeah, they deal like the Sith, only in absolutes. And they seem to just be convinced that he only ever sees in infrared. Yeah, and that ultimately comes around to bite them in the ass. And it's one of those moments I really like because it's a play on something that happened in Predator 1. But you never thought that it would come into play in a more intelligent way. And it does here. Yeah. Where suddenly you realise, oh yeah, he does have more modes of vision. So they flood this warehouse with radioactive dust. And they flood it with UV light, so this should make them invisible. It should make them invisible, but does it? No, because the Predator has other modes of vision. Duh. (laughs) And this scene is set up again in a very aliens-type way. These are essentially our Marines. All of them have got cameras mounted to their suits. So we get to see Danny Glover in the base of operations, which looks very much like the APC, watching all the footage take place as these individuals traipse through the slaughterhouse, like lambs to slaughter. Yeah, it's almost a shot-for-shot remake. Yeah, and all the while you've got this alien camouflaged that nobody can see. That is exactly the same scene in each film. Although I do like 
because of the infrared ultraviolet thing, you have red versus blue in a way. They, yes, they do. Yeah, I do see that. Yeah, there is some thought behind the color schemes going on here. <laughs> so the bare minimum amount of thought has been paid here. Yeah, yeah. So the predator initially can't see them, so you think they've got away with it. He quickly alters his viewing mode. He just like goes doop, 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 different viewing mode. Chroma key, uh, poster <laughs> mode, posterize. Oh, nope, that doesn't work. Nope, that doesn't work. Just oh, scrolling through endlessly. Yeah, yeah. It's like, how many viewing modes have I got? Split screen, <laughs> Quantel. <laughs> it reminds me of Crichton in Red Dwarf. It's like, my eyes don't work. <laughs> he lands on a mode where he can see their flashlights. So Danny Glover sees this change. And he tells them to turn the flashlights off. I don't know how he figures it out himself. No. He just makes the decision. It's just movie thought. Yes. And he arms himself at this point as well. And the Predator bombards the group and kills some of them. And he fires a rocket through one of them. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. In spectacular fashion. It's a great action scene in that way. Once it actually gets started, the setup is purely aliens, but the action in it is okay. And the rocket sets off the sprinklers, which gives it a lot more atmosphere as well. So you've got all these carcasses hanging up and you've got the mist coming down and it's all blue, ultraviolet. So it does have a lot of atmosphere around it. Yeah, it's shot quite effectively by the cinematographer Peter Levy, who hasn't made the best films in the past. But I do think that he does a service to Paul Verhoeven and the way that he does capture this film, it's that's clearly what they're going for. And he actually, he gets there a good many times throughout the film. So really, it's just Dan Glover and Gary Busey left with the Predator. We think Busey is dead. He gets a rocket fired at his face. Mm. Everything leads us to believe that it pretty much blows him up. And we get a short action sequence between Danny Glover and the Predator one-on-one. The Predator's camouflage is damaged at this point as well, isn't he? he yeah, because of the use sprinklers. Yeah. And, yeah, the Predator pursues Danny Glover through the hanging carcasses, almost echoing what he did at the start of the film with the gang members that he literally just repeatedly shoots them with a shotgun. Yeah, that's his signature move. Yeah. It's his power move. He floors the Predator, thinking that he's killed him. Which obviously isn't the case. No, he's able to take his mask off, and we get the repeat of the first film's line, you are one ugly motherfucker. Only it's a little bit different this time around. Yeah. As he bends down and says, you are one ugly. Suddenly the predator comes alive. Just Motherfucker. To <laughs> Again, it's goofy, but I actually like that one. It's definitely just on the wrong side of goofy, but I actually mm, really yeah. kind of like it. And Busey comes back heavily burned. I'm very badly burned. <laughs> <laughs> For someone whose face has exploded, though... He looks okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he looks, he yeah. looks kind of fine. Yeah, because that was a massive explosion, and he's just got this shade across one side. Yeah, of his he's, face. he's doing his audition for Two Face. <laughs> yeah. That's what he's doing. <laughs> and at this point, we get to see the Predator with its disc-like weapon. Yeah, which is very much like a cross between a boomerang and a frisbee. Yeah, it's a bit like the boomerang in uh, Mad Max Two. That's exactly like, what like I thought a, of when I saw like it. Like an electronic version of that. Yeah, I don't like the disc. A lot of people do like the disc. Mm. I actually don't like it. Again, I think it's the Predator cheating. There doesn't seem to be any skill in throwing the disc out of prey. It's just another gadget that makes the Predator an intergalactic James Bond in terms of gadgetry. I like it for what it does to Gary Busey. It's used very well. I just don't like the concept of it. I wish there was more skill shown in throwing it. But in a way, it's more for Danny Glover to use later on. Yes. That's yeah, it really becomes what it's his weapon for. shortly yeah. after. Yeah. 
So shall yeah. we talk about how Gary Busey is spectacularly off in this film? Oh yeah, yeah. This is what I was coming up to. We think he's got the upper hand, and as we know in these kind of films, that can't be the case because there's still half an hour left. He's got his freezing spray on him. The intention is to freeze the Predator and take its technology and study it. And he's trying to freeze it, and we think, finally, he's got the upper hand. When, in fact, nope. It takes out his little disc weapon, throws it through the slaughterhouse. Yeah. It glides through many cow carcasses before finally hitting Gary Busey, who is half-concealed behind a hanging cow carcass. And all we see is, is his bottom half fall over. And just blood pour out. Yeah. What happened to his top half? I have no idea. How is it still elevated? <sighs> it's a great film mystery. What happened to Gary <laughs> Busey's top half? It's one of those moments that really works well in the film, in and of the moment. But once you actually apply any thought to it, it's completely and utterly destroyed as a yeah. scene. The only thing I can think of is that it's a sensor thing. Yeah. Where they couldn't have the guy's face coming back down as well. Well, I do know that. With Predator 2, they were forced to cut a lot of the film yeah. in terms of gore. There is a lot of violence in there, and it was definitely rated appropriately. Over here, it was 18. In America, it was rated R. But at one point, they had a cut that I'm sure was an NC-17, and they yeah. couldn't release it like that because yeah. they knew it would cut their audience in half. Literally, yeah. like Gary Busey yeah. in this scene. So I imagine it's probably something that may have been a reshoot that was beyond their control. There might have been another version of that scene where both bits come down. Mm-hmm. We'll never know completely, but I think that's probably what happened. It could be just something that they've done once more because they think it looks cool. Maybe he's just got incredible upper body strength. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But yeah, it's from this point onwards that it really is just a two-man battle. And they're yeah. trying to capture that magic of the end of Predator, where it's Arnold Schwarzenegger against the alien himself. But I don't think it has any of the actual thought behind it in this film. It's just pure action played for action's sake whereas in the first predator film it really did feel like the climax of a game of cat and mouse and both of these characters the predator and dutch are stripped down of all their technologies and it essentially becomes a fist fight between the two characters in this film there's none of that thematic weight there's nothing else going on there it's more so what can we do that's cool in this scene yeah I think the lack of restraint in this film is a problem for me because there's a reason John McTernan strips a lot of these gadgets and ideas from the first Predator script and it's because he knew what he wanted the film to be and thematically what he wanted to play with. I don't think Predator 2, they're playing with many themes. No. It's not got the same depth. Which is something that afflicts a lot of sequels anyway. Yeah, it's, it it's all about what do we want it to be. Yeah, it falls under that rush production mantle. Yeah, it's like they were almost surprised by the success that Predator was. And with many of these surprises, the next question becomes, shit, how can we keep making money off the back of this? Because Predator as a film is very self-contained, so it falls into that trap of trying to create another film where it doesn't need one. I think that's part of the reason why there has never been a successful sequel to the first Predator film. And it's because it's so self-contained. There is definitely plenty to explore, but I don't think anybody has properly utilised the Predator law in a way that's as successful. We end up on the roof again. There's another standoff, which uh, results in them both hanging off the edge of the roof. 
Yeah, and it's been previously established that Danny Glover is actually afraid of heights. Mm. Although he seems more concerned with the birds that are on the ledge, actually. Damn birds. Rather than the fact that he's really fucking high up. And as they're hanging off the roof, we get another forced tagline, which is, Okay, Pussyface, your move. <laughs> Pussyface was actually the nickname that they had for the first Predator film, <laughs> for, the, for the crew that made it. They called it Pussyface because it had a pussy for a mouth. In God this knows film, what pussies they've been looking at. Jesus yeah, Christ. Geez, terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but in this film, they actually threw that in there. They thought it was humorous enough that, yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. let's throw that in. Kind of works for the character. Yeah, it does, yeah. The Predator's easy. He's going to self-destruct at this point, isn't he? Yeah, I, I've always had an issue with this moment, actually. Mm. Because... Gives up too easily. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it feels all wrong, because he's not been defeated at this point. It's a real last resort in the last mm. film. And yeah, this Predator is quite reckless previously, but I have the feeling that he would do more than what he does to get out of this situation. And actually, it turns out that this situation is rather easy for him to overcome. He just has to let go. And Danny Glover's managed to grab the disc that's been coming planted onto the side of the wall. Yep. And he's able to escape by slicing off one of the Predator's arms. We think it's going to fall to its death. Instead, it manages to grab hold of one of the uh, pipes on the side of the building, mm. which then falls into... A bathroom, conveniently. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it lands conveniently into a bathroom where the Predator gets out his field kit and attends to his wounds, whilst an old couple are watching Jeopardy on the television. And who would have thought that plaster and bathroom tiles would have made such a good med kit. Of course, yeah, yeah. Why doesn't every Predator carry about a couple of bathroom tiles with it if that's oh, what yeah. it needs to heal? I'm thinking it's a serum that just needs to be combined with other matter yes. in order to work. That's I what assumed, it is. I assume so. It's alien <laughs> shit. That, that's what Gary Beast is after, that alien shit. It's magic shit. Oh, yeah. It's, it's just voodoo magic, man. <laughs> <laughs> but again, this is something that sets up a few problems that other filmmakers have fell into the same trap with... Stephen Hopkins, in regards to the Predator, is so concerned with coming up with new gadgets for the Predator to use that other filmmakers have also got into that same trap. He's essentially wrong-footed the series, and people have forgotten that this was originally a creature who was built on this idea that it was a stripped-down hunter, and it was a master of the few tools that it did have. This medkit scene is really a precursor for the type of shit that we see in Alien vs. Predator Requiem, where it has this blue liquid that it just pours on any alien and it instantly disintegrates. In fact, I think this whole gadget-based focus actually contributes to one of the worst ideas I've ever seen implemented with a Predator, which is the Nintendo Power Glove. Do you know about the Nintendo Power Glove? No. Okay, okay, well, I've got a little bit of something for you. In the film Alien vs. Predator Requiem... The Predator wears a glove that is attached to the wrist and knuckles. It's a kind of mechanism, and it gives the Predator a boost in power when punching walls and creatures. Instead of looking cool like the director's intended, it just looks like a Nintendo Power Glove from the 80s. (laughs) (laughs) And there are scenes in which the Predator punches through several feet of concrete just by jumping up with its fist out, much like Superman. Wow. It's the fucking nadir of the series. Wow. And I think that Predator 2, even though this wasn't the intention, sent the Predator series on this path. That's very unfortunate. Yeah, I'm thinking this old couple is very hard of hearing. (laughs) Definitely. Especially all the Predator screams. It's so goofy, but I love that she's just got a broom. Yeah. She's just approaching the bathroom door. Someone in the bathroom. (laughs) Ding, 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 
Anyway. In the meantime, Danny Glover's managed to climb down the drain pipe. He manages to catch up with the Predator as it runs through this corridor and blasts through the wall. And jumps down an elevator shaft eventually as yeah. well. Yeah, and I do like the line where he goes, it's all right, I'm a cop. And the woman goes, I don't think he gives a shit. <laughs> I'd say that's the right side of Goofy. Yeah, that's, it's, that's it's a, a nice that's comic right side. Kind of line. Yeah. yeah. He uh, zooms down this elevator shaft, which conveniently is where his spaceship is stored, in the basement of this building, wherever. It, I don't know how the spaceship gets underneath there there's no there's, there's no a, reason for there's it. a giant hole at the bottom of the elevator shaft that leads to the predator spaceship but yet nobody in this building is aware of the predator or these invisible creatures that have been crawling out of the elevator shaft day in and day out it doesn't actually make any sense it's more of a, just a convenience and it's not even made clear at the end because it just looks like it's gouged itself out of the earth to mm-hmm. get out of where it's stationed and when danny glover actually does emerge from the underground later on in the film it's actually out in the middle of nowhere. There are yeah. no apartments no. anywhere nearby. It's just one of those movie moments. But this actually leads to a great scene in the film that is another holdover from the cutting room floor of the first film where we finally get to see a Predator spaceship. We've seen them from a distance in the first film, but we've never seen them quite so up close and on the inside. So Danny Glover actually follows the Predator to its ship for their final one-on-one confrontation. And I do think they actually utilise this design well. I'm really glad it's in the film. I think John McTernan was right to cut it from Predator, especially yeah. for the point that it was actually in the script, which was the end of the film. He really wanted to strip that ending down as much as he could. It just became about who could win in this battle of brain and brawn. In this film, because it's a bit more thematically haphazard, and it, I don't think it holds much weight in that way, it gives him the opportunity to explore some some new shit. Yeah, I like how it moves Predator lore on a little bit. I think it actually moves the Predator lore on a little bit in a way that I appreciate and not in a way that they're just trying to add more shit to the Predator's arsenal. And the design of the spaceship is kind of Blade Runner meets E.T. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, especially with all the mist with E.T. and everything. And I was thinking about it's a little bit like the interior of the Mysteron city in Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons <laughs> as well. So, yeah, it's all of a bit of a mishmash of that style. However, before the Predator and Danny Glover actually begin their fight, mm-hmm. we get a shot that is the shot that created an entire spin-off franchise. Yeah. We get the shot of the trophy cabinet and what happens to be inside. The alien skull. Yeah, and that was exactly where Alien vs. Predator came from. Was that the actual thing? I thought it was a comic book beforehand. I'm sure the comic book might have come out just before the film came out, but it was all based it was all around that, on that scene. Oh, yeah. wow. They knew this scene was going to be in it, and they threw it out there. It's a shame in a way, because in the context of that film, it's pretty cool. Yes. But it doesn't hold water as a franchise. No, because the worlds that these two creatures inhabit are vastly different worlds. One is comic book goofy, and the other one at least starts off as being far more real world. When you look at Alien, it's truckers in space. When you look at Predator, you're seeing comic book characters. So there is a final battle between Danny Glover and the Predator on board this spaceship. Yeah, and it does try and do that one-on-one thing where it becomes more of a fist fight. I don't think it has the same weight or gravitas as the one-on-one fist fight Predator does. No, it doesn't. And it still relies on technology to solve the issue at the end of the day. Exactly. It's not... He doesn't outsmart the Predator. He just simply has the technology in his hand to do it. 
So the Predator is dispatched. Actually, I've written in my notes. Danny Glover thrusts disc into Predator. <laughs> Lots of so thrusting a, Again, more thrusting. Yeah. And then just when you think it's all over, Danny Glover is surrounded by a whole host of Predators. Yeah, I do really like this scene because it's given Stan Winston the opportunity to explore the Predators as a culture and the different appearances. Yeah. Clearly, they only had about three suits that they which could actually make. Which they're all badly make. optically yeah. implanted into the scene, which is unfortunate. Yeah, it is. But you get these great masks that they're wearing and they all look oh, fantastic yeah. Yeah, yeah. and quite iconic. I'm really quite gutted that in the next film that was made, Alien vs. Predator, they stripped these characters of their alien otherworldliness and just turned them into alien samurais. It's completely the wrong decision. And in Predator 2, they do it completely right. They still look like these alien beings. And we get a little bit more Predator lore coming through. So just when you think they're all going to attack Danny Glover and uh, kill him and he thinks his number is up, they take away their comrade's body. And the leader of the group basically gives Danny Glover some of that respect and hands him a pistol from 1715. It's a good scene. I know that fanboys have been clamouring to find the story behind that pistol out for many years now. Mm. It's not necessary. It's not necessary at all, but I do love what it implies. Yeah. I think it opens up story ideas it does, that have yeah. not been explored since. Well, we've got that new fan film that's just been made, The Dark Ages. Yeah, and it's a very good fan film as well. It does justice to the idea and perhaps shows that there is a kernel of something tangible in the idea as well as mm-hmm. a big film. So they leave with Danny Glover unscathed and uh, they take off in their spacecraft and Danny Glover has to scarper very quickly. And so when the film is said and done, Danny Glover finally emerges from the tunnel at the end of the film after his entire ordeal. No longer a black man. But as a white man. Is that his character arc? Yeah. Is that really the racism in this film that they're going for? He essentially... (laughs) He's covered in ash. Yeah, he's covered in ash from the blast. But he emerges from this tunnel just completely white from head to toe. Am I reading this correctly? I don't know. This is his rites of passage. He's emerged a white man. I don't... Oh... I don't think that's the intention, but it just looks like it. And after all of the heavy racism previously in the film you can't help but think that when you see him but having said that i do think the film ends on a very good line because we have one remaining gary Busey goon adam um, baldwin yeah he's a complete pussy in yeah, this film, and, at, and he basically demands to know what's happened and danny glover just replies don't worry asshole you'll get another chance which is a great line to end on yeah because it, it really alludes to the fact that these guys just keep on visiting yeah. You never know when they're going to crop up again. But yeah, so that's Predator yeah. 2. Um, and now we're done with that, I think it's time for us to get into the stats and facts, as always. Mm-hmm. Maybe there are clues as to why this film has been forgotten in there. So first up, I have the critic score from Rotten Tomatoes, which isn't good. It's mm. got an overall score of 25%. Mm, which is a little harsh, I think. Yeah, and an average rating of 4.6. Now, I don't regard this film as being great. And it's not always good, but I think that is remarkably low. Yeah. I have issues with this film, and I've said that from the beginning, and I have a love-hate relationship with some of the things that are going on in this film, but that is a remarkably low score for the film that it is. Yeah. It's a great beer movie. 
It's a great B movie, beer movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'd say it's probably it deserves at least five point five to six out of ten. Yeah, I would say that's about right. Yeah, fifty five percent, sixty percent Rotten Tomatoes, something like that. I'd say that there are films that have got that score on Rotten Tomatoes that I like much less than oh, this yeah. one. This one's very enjoyable. I don't make any bones about that. I have issues with it in comparison to Predator. Yeah, but when you frame it against what's coming next, mm. this film's great. This film is fantastic in yeah. comparison to that. And if you look at it on an individual basis, just completely detaching it from Predator, it is much better on those lines than being a direct sequel to Predator. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. So I'll go over to our key reviews. I think we've got one from Roger Ebert. What did he give the score? He gave the film two out of five. He basically summed it up by saying, we live in a speck in a corner of a vast universe, and what makes us human is our ability to wonder about what's out there. Since we do not know, the fables we create serve only to inspire our dreams. Predator 2 is a movie whose dreams are angry and ugly. So uh, I think he... (laughs) That um, is full on. I think a lot of the general themes that people picked up on, the general feeling, was that the film was mean-spirited. I can see that. Yeah. I can definitely see that. And I know that Roger Ebert had an issue with the, um, the racism in the film as well, which is quite undeniable you can't escape it no matter how much i enjoy the film as a guilty pleasure and how much i enjoy it for its gore and for its action and for some of its story elements i can't escape that the film is actually quite racist yeah on the other hand empire gave it four out of five. Oh, nice and uh they see that's actually too much for yeah, what i would give it yeah three out of five, three out of five is, so. perfect. but they said uh, more story led than the original which i think is kind of true yeah because actually i was watching it with my girlfriend the other night and she actually remarked she'd never seen this before herself she'd seen predator and predators but she remarked and actually some of the story elements of this film were actually quite interesting yes yes so uh yeah so it's more story led than the original with a high enough body count to make it a satisfying action movie and the imdb score is 6.2 which probably reflects better yeah i'd say that reflects accurately about what the film and that that uh, probably will incorporate more contemporary reviews as well yeah it's clearly gained some sort of following over the years so now we've had the critics, it's on to the box office, and I know that this film didn't have that great of a box office performance hmm. compared to Predator. Oh, Everybody yeah. was expecting it to make more, and it actually came out making less. Its domestic gross was $31 million, and its worldwide gross was $57 million. And the opening weekend was fourth, with just under $9 million. So, although its opening weekend was low, with $9 million, it still went on to make quite a few times that at the box office. Yeah. So clearly it had some small audience that kept going back for more. It opened against Three Men and a Little Lady in its first week. So obviously that was destined to fail. It opened against Home Alone in its second week and Dances with Wolves, in it, which was in its third week. So it has a tough, tough little crowd that yeah. it's up against at the time because Three Men and a Little Lady is a sequel to what was the biggest film of the year of its release. Home Alone has become a classic in and of itself. Yeah. Everybody watches it every Christmas, and it actually ended up being the number one film of the year. And Dances with Wolves, again, everybody regards it as a classic now. So it had tough going. It was a tough weekend to open to. Yeah, especially for an R-rated film. I mean, do you have any idea how much the film cost to make? Well, as you said, the first film cost $18 million. Yeah. And as usual with sequels, they're always more expensive. So this one cost $35 million and whatever advertising budget on top so you can imagine it didn't make that many pennies 
No, I imagine it didn't at all on release. It may have actually started to make money once it had been released on VHS. Because yeah. I'm sure it had a healthy shelf life. Yeah, and I think it still does. Um, even on DVD and Blu-ray, I think it has a fairly healthy shelf life, even in comparison to the other Predator films around it. It's just the law of diminishing returns. And although Predators was a minor step in the right direction, when you watch Predator or Predator 2, you realise that it's still lacking I think the problem with that film is they make something of it being an alien environment that they're taking all these characters to, and it just ends up being another jungle. Yeah. And it's just an excuse for them to repeat Predator, which is such a shame. It's such a waste of what is a good idea, because that's where you need to go next with the series. Either go back in the past and strip it down, or go into the future and take it off-world. I think those are the two options, really. Yeah. And, and it's going to be interesting seeing Shane Black's take on it, because it's, well, it's alluded to be more radical. Yeah, they've said it's going to be something of a reinvention of the franchise yeah. whilst also being a sequel. Now, they said that with the last Predators film, but I have more faith in Shane Black. Yeah, it's in the hands of a more adept filmmaker. And just in case you were wondering, John McTernan had a film out in the same year, The Hunt for Red October, which yep. finished above Predator 2, and Schwarzenegger and Paul Verhoeven had one, Total Recall. Quite and rightly. that was one of the biggest films of the year. Quite rightly, because both those films are much better than Predator 2. Definitely. And it ended up 38th overall domestically for the year. So it's... Out of 38 films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so are we any closer to understanding why this film has been forgotten? Yes, because I don't think it gave people what they wanted. I think it's one of those classic situations of a film trying to do something different. It has problems alluding to its rough production, but I think... If you boil it down to its core problems, I don't think it gave the public what they wanted from a Predator film, which yes. is Arnie in a jungle with the Predator. And that's kind of where Predators tried to recreate that and failed. Yes, Because they definitely. tried to go back to that idiom and it obviously didn't work for that well, film, audiences but... have moved on since then. Yeah. We've seen the Predator in countless comic books, video games, um, spin-offs. We want to see the Predator in a different light now because we've seen the same shit repackaged over and over again. And yet they went back to that well because that's what they thought audiences wanted. Mm. And it turned out, no, no, we didn't. Also, maybe just the mood at the time, maybe when you get films like Three Men and a Little Lady and Home Alone doing really well, people don't have a taste for that kind of film. Well, it happened with The Thing. Yeah. Going up against E.T. We've seen it happen before. It's a casualty of what's currently in at that time. I don't think that Predator 2 is a classic in the same way as The Thing is. But perhaps it did fall victim to that whole mindset. But I think it's a much more worthy sequel than it was made out at the time. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm not the film's biggest fan, but I do think more has been made of its failure than should be. And you can't argue that it's not entertaining. It's a film that you watch on a Friday night after down on a few cans. As for me, I think one of the problems is that Stephen Hopkins decided that what audiences wanted to see at that time was Predator through the lens of Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. And so that's what he set about making. And then he added the whole James Cameron aspect to the mix as well. I think he was too busy thinking about these other filmmakers that were at work and not thinking about what he could bring to the table. Because when Predator 2 was released, it was essentially a diet Paul Verhoeven film. Yeah. And there was a much better Paul Verhoeven film in Total Recall. And to go further, I think Stephen Hopkins actually reminds me of Paul W.S. Anderson in this way, in the way that he's clearly working in the wheelhouse of filmmakers that he loves, but he doesn't have the capability to pull it off in the same way. He doesn't have the capability to make a film of the same kind of quality mm. when he should just be thinking about making a Stephen Hopkins film. 
I do think he's a better filmmaker than yeah. Paul Davis Anderson. I just think that they share that same fault. You don't get the sense that there is an auteur behind this. No. It feels very much a studio sequel. Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason why it failed. Because studios very rarely know what audiences actually want to see. Oh, yeah. Okay, so all that's left for me to ask, is Predator 2 a proud trophy kill that should be the pride of the mantelpiece, or nothing more than a piece of bad taxidermy of a once great animal? Should it be forgotten? Or should it be remembered? This is really difficult, because it's not a great film, but I think it's a much better sequel than people give it credit for, and it's much better than anything that followed. Yes. It's not a complete drop-off. So, I don't know. (laughs) Well, to throw my two cents out there, I actually started this episode thinking that I was going to say that actually this film was probably best forgotten. Mm. It's a great guilty pleasure movie, and it's a great film to watch with beer, but I don't think it does enough with The Predator to really warrant its own existence, and I really wish that it wasn't just a clone of other films at the time. And yet, talking about it today, I found that, you know what, there are actually a lot more aspects to the film that I like more than I thought I did. And there is a lot of goofiness, and there is a lot that would change. But thinking about how much this film has been derided and the critical reception it's received, I'm actually coming down slightly in its favour. Only just, Mm. but slightly in its favour. However, I'm still not quite there, but Mm. I'm going to say tentatively, yeah, okay. It's one of the best forgotten movies, but I'll put an asterisk next to that. Yeah, it's very much on the fence with this one, and I think it just just about crawls yeah. into being a film that deserves a rewatch. Maybe only one rewatch, but a rewatch nevertheless. Yeah, absolutely right. Because I, I think it would be good for people to watch this film again with a fresh viewpoint and uh, judge on its own terms. Okay, so I think that we're actually going to say that this one is one of the best of the forgotten. And I push again, we're putting an asterisk Only just. Because <laughs> it is only just. Yeah. And maybe that'll change in the future. Yeah. But for the moment, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go with that. And that's all we have time for for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. And get in touch with your suggestions for possible episodes. Join us next week when we'll be looking at the film that made Billy Zane and Treat Williams household names. Yes, you've got it, kids. We're watching The Phantom. Slam Evil. <laughs> That's the tagline. Oh, that slam, is the tagline. Slam Evil. Slam Evil. <laughs> I'm Gareth Green, and thanks for listening. And that's all from him. Ta-ta for now. <laughs>